Previously on Beta. I got a bad feeling about this. So we may see something go boom here. I will not carry a gun, Frank. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome to Beta. Today, my fellow Canadian, musician and writer M.D. Dunn joins us to talk about our fellow Canadian, the innovative guitarist and songwriter Bruce Coburn. Everything just kind of gelled perfectly and it was just one of those moments where the song meant much more than it's ever meant to me and it was like I was hearing it for the first time. And Ed Park on his novel Same Bed, Different Dreams. It is one of the weirdest, if not the weirdest books I've ever read. I've read a lot of them. It was really sort of almost like a, a mirror version of, of myself and like an alternate life for myself. And I just, as a writer, you, you want to follow that whenever you feel it strongly. But first... I'm sorry, am I interrupting anything? Mm, not really. Mm. You look absolutely beautiful. You truly belong here with us among the clouds. Mm. Thank you. Mm. Would you join me for a little refreshment? <laughs> Everyone's invited, of course. Our first guest likely doesn't need an introduction, but that's Billy D. Williams as Lando Calrissian in The Empire Strikes Back. The debonair actor and artist has spent almost 80 years on screen and on stage. After a successful run on Broadway, Billy starred as Chicago Bear Gail Sayers in the TV movie Brian's Song. 55 million people watched it. And I think it's safe to say that at least 54 million of them were crying their eyes out at the end. Billy's big break came in Lady Sings the Blues alongside Diana Ross. And of course, his adventures once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away. And Billy is now putting his legacy on the page. His memoir is called What Have We Here? Portraits of a Life. That title, of course, is a reference to his suave introduction as Lando. He sat down with us to talk about his incredible life and career, his groundbreaking work on Broadway, and his beginnings as an artist. My sister and I went to music and art high school. And from music and art, I uh, got a scholarship to the National Academy. And uh, what I learned, art is gentle. Art is uh, incisive, uh, using, allowing you yourself to use your five senses, you know, seeing sense, smelling sense, touching sense, hearing sense. It allows you to look at things, to be a sponge, to be receptive. It allows you to appreciate. Yeah, very well said. Why did you decide to leave painting to pursue acting? Well, I've been acting since I was six and a half years old. I was on Broadway with, uh, in a Kurt Vile musical with his wife, La Helenia. Uh, so it was introduced to me and, uh, and it has continued throughout my life. I never really pursued it. It just sort of pursued me. Mm. You became good friends with the great writer and civil rights activist, James Baldwin. Can you tell us about your friendship with him? Well, Jimmy, when I met Jimmy, uh, he was at Columbia Pictures writing uh, a, a script on uh, Malcolm X's life. 
And uh, I was doing a play on Broadway. I was in a musical on Broadway with uh, Leslie Uggins, Hallelujah Baby. And he saw me in the uh, play. And he that's how we met. He approached me and asked me to consider playing Malcolm X. And I said, great. That's how we became friends. Mm. In 1970, you auditioned for a made-for-TV movie called Brian's Song. It was based on the real-life friendship between the Chicago Bears teammates Gail Sayers and Brian Piccolo. How did your audition go? Well, it worked very nicely. I mean, I was in, in a very kind of a low place in, in my life. And when I was asked to, to uh, audition, uh, I was in the right frame of mind. And uh, so it worked very well. Of course, Jimmy Kahn and I met. It was an immediate chemistry. Mm. It was one of those moments that was meant to be. Yeah, that whole experience to me was uh, was an act of love, mm -hmm. an absolute act of love. Yeah, and you were both both you and James Kahn were were great in that. The movie has this famously emotional locker room scene. Can you tell us about that scene and what you did to prepare for it? You learn about what their experiences were between each other, and and you observe and listen. I worked with Buzz Kulik, one of the best actors—I mean, directors—I've ever worked with. Of course, I read the uh, "I Am Third book based on uh, Brian Piccolo's life and his relationship with uh, Gail Sayers. You know, you, you just pick up as much information as possible. You know, it was, as I said, it was meant to be. It was uh, one of those experiences where I didn't really have to find ways to motivate myself. I mean, everything was there. We just got word that Brian Piccolo is that he's sick, very sick. And uh, it looks like um, he might never play football again. 55 million people watched Brian's song when it aired. Both you and James Caan received Best Actor Emmy nominations, but neither of you won, which is... I find very surprising. Why do you think that was the case? I have no idea, really, specifically. But I thought it was a uh, a tragedy. <laughs> I mean, uh, they gave it to an English actor for the six wives of Henry VIII, and I never understood why. I'm assuming uh, that they couldn't decide whether they give me the emmy or give jimmy the emmy i always felt they should have given the two of us yeah the I agree. Emmy. yeah it was such a monumental experience for so many people in this country which lasted for a lot of years yeah i still have vivid memories of, of reading it and as you point out in your memoir Brian's song also underscored an important message about the power of art and movies to affect people. And that fact that our, your movie accomplished something special by getting, getting tens of millions of people to see color and then to see past it, to see all the humanity we all share. That's a, a very important and, and, uh, message 
Yeah, I, that, that's a monument. That's monumental. Yeah. I'm always attracted to that kind of message. I get a little bit uh, tired of people taking sides. I mean, I think that the life experience is much more than a question of taking sides. It's melding all of the colors and shades and gradations together. And I think that's that's a lot more fun for me mm-hmm. to do things that are innovative, to do things that challenge your perception of things. Very well said. Motown founder Barry Gordy signed you to a management contract after uh, Brian's song aired. And Barry then cast you in Lady Sings the Blues, which starred Diana Ross. How did starring in this film change your career? Well, I became a real romantic figure on the screen, which is a really heroic romantic figure with a kind of uh, vulnerability, which I managed to use in playing these characters. I I never met nobody like you before, you know, you kind of make me Marcello Mastriani was one of my favorite actors because I loved his vulnerability. And I always tried to bring a kind of vulnerability to all these kind of heroic figures. Right, and I think that's why what makes you such a, such a compelling, such an excellent actor, is because you're not, you know, you're not trying to do the same thing over and over. You're always looking to break new ground. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, thank you. Of course, you would go on to play Barry Gordy in the miniseries about the Jackson Five. Was that awkward for you at all in any way? No, no I thought I was the perfect person for that because I knew very, very, very well. He has a wonderful uh, take on life. And I wanted to kind of express that. It's very whimsical. There's something very whimsical about Barry. We want to get... Barry? Yes. That's a serious step. You got a job? Daddy. Oh, yeah, I forget it. You work for me. Daddy, be good. Okay, okay, okay. Listen, Hazel. Okay, I will. Why don't you let me and Jermaine speak to each other alone? And I thought I was the only one that could really pull it off. I think you're right. Absolutely. Yeah, and whimsy's a good thing. We need more whimsy in the world as far as I'm concerned. You made history when you were cast as the first black character in the Star Wars universe. You, of course, played Lando Calrissian. How did you go about creating this character? Well, again, you know, when I heard the name Calrissian, I said, wow, that's Armenian. And uh, that was, I thought that was the one perfect uh, introduction and an opportunity to broaden the character. And then, of course, when I saw the cape, I thought that was uh, Errol Flynn right there. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. You know, the combination of those, those two things really kind of gave me an impetus. It really kind of colored the what I wanted to do with the with Lando. What are you doing here? Ah, repairs. I thought you could help me out. What have you done to my ship? Your ship? Hey, remember, you lost her to me fair and square. And how you doing, Chewbacca? (laughs) You still hanging around with this loser? (laughs) Hello, what have we here? 
Welcome, I'm Lando Calrissian. I'm the administrator of this facility. And who might you be? Leia. Welcome, Leia. I thought he was like at a particular juncture in uh, human history where people were past the whole question of one thing or the other. Yeah, things weren't so binary. You were part of another big franchise. You played Harvey Dent in Tim Burton's Batman, but you viewed this as a missed opportunity. Why? Well, I wanted to really do um, Two-Face, but they decided to take a different uh, direction with that. But as I always say, you win some, lose some. Did you have a vision in your mind of, like, did you have the chance to think how about how you were going to play Harvey Dent? Not really. I didn't get a chance to. Yeah, that's unfortunate. I mean, I, I, I started out with an image which was based on uh, one of my favorite politicians of all time, Adam Clayton Powell. Yeah, he was a bigger than life kind of character. And he was a, a congressman in, uh, in New York City. Now our new district attorney, Harvey Dent, will carry out that promise. Harvey. Thank you. Thank you, Mayor Gore. Thank you. The people of Gotham City, I'm a man of few words. But those words will count, and so will my actions. But I after after that I Never got a chance to really explore it. So I don't, I don't know really what I would have done with it. Yeah. What impact has writing your memoir had on the way you think about your life and your career? Well, you know, I'm 86 years old, going on 87. And I'm at that stage in my life where I'm thinking about legacy and all that kind of silliness. I just thought, you know, I've had such an interesting life. And, uh, and I thought, and I, I have an awful, I've discovered over, over the years that there are an awful lot of people who are, have been interested in my career. So I thought it was time to really kind of talk about things that most people don't normally hear about. I mean, people, little brown skinned people like me are generally talked about in terms of coming out of slavery and things of that nature. I decided I wanted to talk about my life in a much much more interesting way yeah and you did that it's you've you've had a you've had a to quote from the famous movie you've had a wonderful life and uh it was was, it's wonderful to read about it so thank you so much for writing the book and thank you for taking the time to talk to us today and one more time i'll congratulate you on what have we here portraits of a life it's a very interesting and, and inspiring book well i end the book by saying chandelier yeah i got that that's an expression I got from, uh, it was a, one of the great jazz musicians, uh, uh, Lester Young, back in the bebop days. I use that expression anyway, so chandelier. Billy D. Williams is an actor and artist. He's also the author of What Have We Here? Portraits of a Life. Find out more about Billy and his career at WPR.org slash beta. And his openness to influence by music that isn't North American probably makes his music quite unique as well. Coming up, M.D. Dunn on one of Canada's greatest songwriters and guitarists, Bruce Coburn. 
I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Bruce Coburn is one of Canada's most celebrated musicians. He's a member of the Canadian Music Hall of Fame and an officer of the Order of Canada. Bruce writes songs about love, protest, and spiritual discovery. His hits include Lovers in a Dangerous Time, If I Had a Rocket Launcher, and Wondering Where the Lions Are. M.D. Dunn has written a book that is much less a biography and more like a guidebook for Coburn fans. It's called You Get Bigger As You Go. When he was 14 years old, M.D. discovered a cassette copy of Bruce's album, Joy Will Find a Way. M.D. said listening to that album changed his life. Beta's resident musicologist, Steve Gotcher, sat down with M.D. to get the rest of the story. Once I realized that I was writing a book, it it started with, I I was able to interview him for publication uh, for a couple of magazines. And then I started this project of going back to listen to all of his music closely and, and just figure out what it meant to me. And once I realized I was writing a book, I was hoping to write that beginner's guide. And in my day job, I, I teach at a, a college. One of the courses I've taught for about 12 years is a music history course. And I've noted that every year, uh, fewer people know about many of the classic artists and songwriters. And um, so very few uh, people in their 20s have heard of Bruce Coburn or his music. So I get the uh, pleasure of introducing people in their 20s to this music that they, they haven't heard before. So I thought, well, I would very much like if Bruce's music survives and is passed along into the next generations. And I thought, well, maybe a, a guidebook might help in that for that purpose. And I was glad you did it this way because it was... I mean, I've thought about this stuff because I'm probably as big a, a fan as you are, but but anybody who isn't is really going to get some real insight into uh, what this guy's all about. You came up with the title of this book, which is a lyric from Bruce Coburn, You Get Bigger As You Go. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, out of all of the brilliant lines that uh, Bruce <laughs> has written, why you picked that particular one for your book. Yeah, that album, that's from an album called Humans. And I knew that album a long time ago, but I'd sort of faded away from my memory. And I was, when I was going through all the albums again, that song really stood out. And I had this one moment where I was standing on the river here, uh, where I live, and it was in the spring and the ice was breaking up. And I was listening to that album as I was walking along the river. And that song came on and, and everything just kind of gelled perfectly and it was just one of those moments where the song meant much more than it's ever meant to me and it was like I was hearing it for the first time that line you get bigger as you go no one told me I just know bales of memory like boats in tow you get bigger as you that really struck me and I, and I thought it, it kind of encapsulates what I was trying to do with the project in that showing, yes, like Bruce's evolution as a musician and a writer as well as I could, and, but also showing how, again, how music 
how we grow into the music we love, you know, and how it helps us in our personal evolution and influences us. So uh, that that line really stood out for, for that reason. And I like the music of it. When you first heard Bruce's music, was it a visceral thing? Did you immediately become attracted to it or did, did you have to work with it for a while? Yeah, the first album was Joy Will Find A Way. I was 14 years old and I, I knew his name uh, recognized his name kind of, but I didn't know anything about him and which sounds strange for a Canadian kid, but I grew up in a town that was really focused on rock and roll, you know? So there wasn't a lot of Bruce Coburn floating around and, um, I found the cassette version and what attracted it to me or me to it, uh, was the cover because it reminded me of a Cat Stevens album. It had this beautiful animation by, uh, Blair Drawson, sort of, uh, all these animals sitting in, uh, sitting around. And, um, I put that on and it blew me away. I didn't really know what to make of it because it sounded unlike anything I'd heard before. I don't know if I'd really heard many folk albums in that in the way that that is a folk album. And the guitar playing was something that I just started playing guitar and I didn't even recognize it as a guitar. It was, how do you play a guitar like that? I have no clue. It was an instrumental called Skylarking. Um, it's this beautiful guitar piece with um, I think it just has percussion on it, maybe a couple other instruments in there as well. I'd heard guitar players, um, Leona Boyd, the classical guitar player, being Canadian, she was, you'd hear her everywhere. But this piece, Skylarking, I'd never heard a guitar played that way. Had alternate tunings, uh, which I didn't know anything about either at the time. And so I would say it took me, it struck me immediately, but I was kind of slow to catch on. And believe it or not, in Canada at that time, this would have been the early 80s, I had a hard time finding albums by Bruce Coburn. I didn't have a lot of money either. So, and I must admit though, some of his music I found quite challenging throughout my life. And there were albums that would come out, I'd listen and I'd say, I don't really get this one. Right. I remember first hearing Inner City Front when it came out, thinking, hmm, this sounds just a little bit more contemporary than I'm willing to to go with. And somebody even <laughs> said to me, one of the songs sounds like the Cars. And I was oh, appalled. Yeah. want to go walking i think is the one but i grew into it what um what are the things that makes bruce's music so unique over other kinds oh i i think his his musicality for sure bruce is a very accomplished musician uh, guitar player and that even shows in the way he writes he writes usually lyrics first and then puts the music on top of them like a musical score over the over the scene, which takes a, a lot of ability to do that effectively. So I think he has that. He has uh, this prowess with his instrument, with the guitar, and his openness to influence by music that isn't North American probably makes his music quite unique as well. Battered buses jammed up to the roof, dust and diesel the prevailing themes. 
sleeping on the truck in front Feet trailing over like he's trolling for dreams Smiling girl directing traffic flow 45 strapped over cotton print dress Marimba brown and graceful limbs Give me a moment of loneliness In your book, a shorter section is devoted to Bruce as a writer, Bruce as an activist, Bruce's playing, and then you spend the rest of the book giving a synopsis of just about every album except the live ones. And you spend 16 years in an era you call becoming a developmental period from 1970 to 1988, which covers 16 albums. Why is the becoming era so long? Yes, that is unusual. Well, I think in that that span of time, we see sort of his complete development as an artist. If you go back to 1970, the, the first albums are kind of, they're powerful too, but they're a young person writing. They're um, very folk. One day I walk in flowers. One day I walk on stones. Today I walk in hours. One day. By the end of that period, he's become sort of this quasi-new wave artist, you know, musically. He's developed that. He's become an activist. He's crystallized his spirituality, becoming openly Christian. And even the, the way he's Christian kind of changes. But we see in that span of time, his entire body of concern. in that period of time all of the tools that he'll then use for the rest of his uh, career and I think I say in the book that had his career ended with say World of Wonders that he made no more albums we would have a, a complete cycle of of the development of an artist then you cover another period called maturity from 1991 to 2011 and that covers eight so in that era, he the first many albums he, he did, I, I can't quite remember how many, he did with a man named uh, Eugene Martinek. They started out together. Um, and he goes through a transition toward the end of that first period with Jonathan Goldsmith and Kerry Crawford as producers. And in this middle period, he starts working with, well, he actually works with T-Bone Burnett for a couple of pretty profound albums in there. And then he, he switches and works with Colin Linden, who he's still working with. And in that period, I, I don't know that the uh, Bruce's evolution or as a musician is quite as pronounced in that period. He seems to have become himself. But he, he sort of does what he's already done 
in a bigger way and he expands on things and he kind of goes back to many of his roots or the roots music in his music. sort of the he has all the tools and he's he's expressing it as a fully formed artist during that that period so now we've we've come to the era that we're calling the present and you have three records listed there starting with the uniquely titled bone on bone which actually is a very uh, uh autobiographical title for him it is, explain yeah. to me a bit what that's all about bone on bone is a, a reference to the arthritis that Bruce has been suffering for who knows how long. He's only become public with it. This is the other remarkable thing about his evolution as a musician, is that he is profoundly physically impaired. And But when you go to see him play, you don't know. He is adapted, which is, I think, a sign of pure genius. He's using more tunings to compensate for the lack of reach, that he just his hands can't reach any, anymore in those ways. But there's no doubt when you hear him play, he's a master. And I think that part of that mastery is just demonstrating that even the loss of cartilage hasn't stopped him from expressing through that instrument. So Bone on Bone is a reference to profound arthritis that he's, he's earned through uh, 60 years of guitar playing. Bruce's latest album is called O Sun, O Moon. Yes. And it harkens back to his earlier days and somehow it's some people have compared it to his very first record mm -hmm. so what's the juxtaposition between those two records and a span of what what do we have 55 years of music yeah. yeah i hope it's not his last album but it kind of sounds like it it really bookends his whole collection it's a roots record it's produced by colin linden and on the surface, it seems quite simple. You listen to it the first time and you hear beautiful guitar and wonderful lyrics. And then you start listening to it and you realize there's a lot going on there. There's a lot of instrumentation and just layering of, of sound. It's a gorgeous album. This is the perspective of a 78-year-old man uh, looking back at his life. So it's remarkably different in that way from his first albums but remarkably similar in the way. I'll give you an example. So on the new album, there's a song called, oh, in fact, it's O Sun, O Moon, it's the title song. And it's a dream wherein the narrator goes to the pearly gates basically and, and walks in and you know sees the afterlife. And the, uh, the chorus is, O sun by day, O moon by night, light my way so I get and if that sun and moon don't shine, heaven guide these feet of mine to glory. 
you go back to early mid-career, Dancing in the Dragon's Jaws album, there's a song in there called Footsteps, which is a similar song imagining life after death or how one might want to be considered after they're, they're gone. And the line from that song, Footsteps, is leave no footprints when we go, uh, only where we've been a faint and fading glow. You have this new album that looks at stepping into the next thing or transcending this life by walking out of it. Well, this has been a pleasure. Mark Dunn, thank you so much for writing this book, You Get Bigger As You Go, Bruce Coburn's Influence and Evolution. It's a really fascinating book, and I'm, I'm really happy to have had a chance to read it. Oh, thank you for having me on, and I'm so glad that you, you've enjoyed it. Thank you. M.D. Dunn is the author of You Get Bigger As You Go, Bruce Coburn's Influence and Evolution. He spoke to Steve Gotcher. Find out more about Bruce Coburn at wpr.org slash beta. War is horribly part of the, the human condition. And I think there is that sense that it kind of never goes away. Coming up, Ed Park joins us to talk about his mind-bending novel, Same Bed, Different Dreams. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. I never knew what you all wanted So I gave you everything All that I could pillage Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. A quick question for you. What do the following have in common? Odd job from the James Bond classic Goldfinger, the legendary science fiction author Philip K. Dick, Kim Jong-un, and the slasher movie Friday the 13th. The answer is they all make appearances in Ed Park's long-awaited second novel, Same Bed, Different Dreams. This book is unlike any other book I've ever read, and that is a good thing. Ed keeps the reader in a state of delightful disorientation. I had to go online to determine which characters were real and which owed their existence to Ed's incredible imagination. Mind-bending questions started dancing in my head. Was there really a Korean provisional government? Are there really five kinds of different dreams? And that, my alphas, leads us to the title of Ed's book. It's an old adage in Asia, very popular in Korea, that my father wrote to me in an email once, probably, I believe, in the 90s, so quite a while ago. And I just, I don't even remember the context, but I just remember it being so evocative and poetic and just thinking that would be a great <laughs> title for a book sometime. So it took, you know, another, let's say, 10 years at least before I was working on something that I thought might justify that title. And so Same Bed, Different Dreams, on the one hand, what I started out with in terms of the writing was, you know, a, a kind of a, maybe a comedy of family, a comedy of relationships. Uh, you don't, same bed, different dreams, meaning you don't know what somebody else is thinking, even, even people very close to you, your family, your friends. The more I kind of thought about it, the more I realized this book is actually going to be a lot about Koreans in America, Korean history in general. I started thinking about that saying, uh, same bed, different dreams, as 
kind of a metaphor for Korea itself, the country that kind of superpowers have projected their dreams onto. And of course, North and South Korea being in the same bed, being the same ethnicity, but having very different uh, kind of national goals. Mm -hmm. Very well said. So why did you decide to write such an expansive book covering three very different subjects, Korean history, American pop culture, and the impact that technology has on our lives? They could easily be like a trilogy. It could easily be three separate books. Maybe it's just my, the way my, my mind works when I'm kind of in this creative mode. Your, your mind reaches for these memories. I don't think I really consciously thought of that show MASH for many years, but that was a huge part of me growing up and, you know, watching TV. It was in syndication. And I mean, there was at least a couple years where it was like on every day after school. And it's so I just kind of thought, what a strange way for me. I was born in Buffalo, New York. My parents came from Korea in the late 60s. Uh, but I didn't really I hadn't really visited Korea. I knew a little bit from them and, and what they had lived through and been through, including the Korean War. But then to watch Alan Alda... <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what, Jamie Farr, you know, these these actors doing a show that was also kind of, I think, a commentary on Vietnam. You know, it was it was very confusing, but also a form of entertainment. So, you know, I found myself putting a lot of history into the book, but it's it's kind of only the good parts, only the stuff that has engaged me. And, and to, to think of MASH and other forms of pop culture, I did want it to be entertaining and even at times, you know, very, very funny. I, I am at heart, I think, a comic novelist. And and so I'm trying to bring all these different elements together. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of humor in your work, and I really appreciated that. I'm guessing that one of the biggest challenges you faced would have been weaving the different storylines together. W was that indeed the case? It was until it wasn't. If I can remember, you know, during the writing process, I'm kind of going on one of the plot lines is fairly linear, kind of the modern day. And then when I realize, oh, this character is going to be reading a book with this sort of outrageous alternative history of Korea, you know, my mind is kind of like, wait a second, wait a second. I don't know if this is the same book. And then once it clicked, once I found a, a method of putting it in, something turns in my mind and I'm, I'm able to, to integrate it more. There are definitely, though, plenty of... <laughs> <laughs> notebooks and kind of crazy looking charts where I'm plotting who's connected to whom, you know, there are, there are fictional characters and then there are figures from history. There are elements from different, you know, movies and sitcoms and so forth. And to have them all connect in a satisfying way, th there was a lot of, uh, you know, brain power and, and sweat involved in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can imagine there would be, but it was well worth it. I had to go online to figure out which characters were historical figures and which were not. <laughs> so that was good research, kind of good a good education for me. Yeah. What, and you mentioned blending fiction and nonfiction, and that's one of the, the great appeals of the book. But why did you decide to blend fiction and nonfiction? Well, I think you can only tell certain parts of, of history. And I'm, I guess I'm talking about modern Korean history and how it dovetails with, with American history. In order to do that, you need to talk about certain figures, right? So one of the elements in the book is the very real group called the Korean Provisional Government, which is founded in, in 1919, kind of in protest to the, the Japanese occupation of Korea. They colonized Korea since, since 1910. And this is a real group that I read about years ago. And I would always, over the years, just kind of like 
if there was a book on Korean history or, you know, the Korean War, whatever, I would look to in the index to see if there was any mention of it. And there, there was kind of scant mention. So, but I love this idea of a provisional government that actually, it's a figurehead. It doesn't really have any power. It's in exile, right? It's based in Shanghai. Syngman Rhee, who is living in Hawaii, is elected, you know, the head of it. And I just thought, this is a great idea for for a novel if I can then kind of expand that. And what if they actually did have power? What if they didn't dissolve, you know, in the 40s? What if they were still around today? So you can see how actual historical events, figures, entities sparked. They kind of get got my creative juices flowing uh, in this case. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And lucky for us as readers, the question, what is history, is a recurring motif in your novel. Why? It's a big question, obviously. And I think it was, it was a question to myself. The reader doesn't have to know this, but it was a question to myself. It's like, why is it that these things that I've read or that have been told to me, uh, that I've watched, why have they stayed with me? Why do I think about sitting down and watching the series finale of MASH, which I think is still the most viewed non-sports event in, in broadcast history, right? Why do I remember when Korean Airlines Flight 007 was shot down uh, in 1983 by the Soviets? Why do I remember thinking how interesting that it was Flight 007 at the height of, you know, kind of my fascination with James Bond? Yeah, and Why the odd job cameos. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I love the odd job yeah. cameos. <laughs> so in a, in a way, it's it's sort of like, that is history too. And in asking that question, I believe it's the very first line of the book. It's almost like I wrote the book to answer that question, if that's not too uh, tautological. It just felt right. It felt like the question to ask and a way to maybe a- address or resolve things that have been taking over my mind for for most of my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You, you mentioned earlier, one of your main characters is Soon Sheen. Can you tell us a bit about him? Yeah. So he was the the first kind of voice in my head. And I I was sitting in a house upstate alone with a typewriter, actually. And his voice just sort of emerged. And he worked for a big tech company called Gloat, which I had been walking in a park up there. And there was a <laughs> there was some company named GLOAB on a bench. They had dedicated a bench. And that kind of was churning in my mind. And I was like, who is this guy? Well, maybe the easy answer is he's a little bit like me. So I I kind of made him roughly my age. He's going to be from Buffalo. His parents are from Korea. And that's where things diverged. But it had been a long time since my first novel, Personal Days, had come out. I kind of thought, well, maybe he's a writer who isn't a writer anymore. And maybe he works for a a tech company, which, you know, obviously technology, big tech is is always on our minds. I had worked for a couple of years for Amazon. So I had some thoughts about that. But, you know, in my mind, Gloat would be a combination of like several different companies. So it's got social media going on and all sorts of stuff. His character deepens over, over the many pages and, and stuff. But it was really sort of almost like a, a mirror version of, of myself and like an alternate life for myself. And I, I just, as a writer, you, you want to follow that whenever you feel it strongly. 
Mm, definitely, yeah. As a Canadian, I'm pretty much legally mandated to ask you about the third overtime of Game 6 of the 1999 Stanley Cup Finals <laughs> between your hometown Buffalo Sabres and the Dallas Stars. Tell us what happened and why you decided to include this bit of hockey history. You know, I was living in New York at the time. I've been in New York for a long time, but I was born and raised in Buffalo. For my sins, I, I followed the <laughs> Buffalo Bills and, and the Buffalo Sabres. And, you know, and I played, I didn't play football growing up, but I played hockey growing up. The Sabres have been to the, the finals twice, okay? Once against the Flyers back in 74, 75, and then once against the Stars. And I remember, you know, watching that triple overtime, as you say, Brett Hull's skate is clearly in the crease. He scores and even though later, you know, I, I believe the NHL headquarters are like, yeah, his, his foot was in the crease. That shouldn't have been goal. It was too late. The cat was out of the bag. And so, you know, not long after that, I, I, in a note to myself, just kind of playing around with certain obsessions, I thought that line about how the uh, 1999 Stanley Cup finals was never finished. And, you know, same with the Korean War, which is never actually, there was no actual peace treaty involved. And just like, what if somebody connected those two things? I threw that in there. And it, as you know, from reading it, it kind of opened up this rich vein of Sabre's lore, you know, trying to connect that to the larger movements of the book was, was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And a lot of fun to read. And you even have a little black and white shot, a aerial view of a uh, uh, Brett Hull's uh, <laughs> skate in the, in the crease. So that was great. Yeah. How did the 1980 slasher film Friday the 13th find its way into Same Bad, Different Dreams? So again, I believe sometime in the 90, 1990s, I had read somewhere Kim Jong-il, who was the son of the founder of North Korea, Kim Il-sung, and the father of the current leader, Kim Jong-un. Before he was elevated to the leader of North Korea upon his father's death, he was a huge film buff. He not only had a huge personal collection of, of movies, but he he wrote a lot about film production and how movies should be made. And I read somewhere that he his favorite movie was Friday the Thirteenth, and I actually hadn't watched it as a kid. I was you know I'm a, I was a little bit afraid of slasher movies to be honest, so I hadn't seen that. But that question always I just thought. How interesting, if true, right? <laughs> Huge, if true, as they say. But when I finally came around to watch it, I found it strangely, I mean, it was, it was scary, it was violent, but there was something like kind of entrancing about it. And almost like aesthetically, I was like trying to put myself in his mind, like how would a dictator, like what would he, yeah. what, what would he grasp? And anyway, it was only upon reading this this biography, you know, for the millionth time, I noticed a detail about his early life that there was this aha moment where I was like, oh, I have a theory why this could have been his favorite movie, like why he would have responded to it. So I felt uh, kind of duty bound to include that <laughs> in the novel itself. Yeah, yeah I, I'm so glad you did. I, I was really struck by the sentence, war is a form of time travel. That kind of, kind of really resonated with me. What, what does that mean to you? I was just reading a story the other day by uh, my late friend, Gabe Hudson, who had been a, a, a rifleman in the first Gulf War. This idea that, you know, you go back to the Iliad, you go back before the Iliad, like war is horribly part of the, the human condition. And I think there is that sense that, 
it kind of never goes away. And in a horrible way, it connects you with earlier times. And even, you know, thinking about all the violence in the world today, and then, you know, having to read from my book or talk about my book to revisit what happened during the Korean War is just like, it's horrible. War is just this kind of um, fact of life and fact of civilization, I guess, that doesn't go away. Yeah, very well said. What do you want people to take away from reading Same Bed, Different Dreams? I hope it's an, a reading experience unlike any you've ever had. I mean, there are obviously books and authors that I admire and that I look up to, but I was really trying to write something that would be fun to read and fascinating, hopefully, but also kind of structured in a way that would not just keep you on your toes, but make you kind of eager to read the next section to see kind of like, how is he going to tell this part of the story? Beyond that, I would hope people laugh because as I said, I I do work hard on some of these, (laughs) some of these jokes. And also to think about that question, what is history? So for me, perhaps it's, you know, in writing this book, looking at Buffalo Sabres history, Korean War, you know, the, am I ancestral lands, both Buffalo and Korea, but also like, I would hope that the reader would come away with his or her own take on that question, like to look within themselves and, you know, wonder about what, what did my parents go through? What did my, my grandparents go through? How am I here? That is, I believe that is history too. And uh, that is a little bit grandiose, but I think that is what drove me to write a book like this. Mm-hmm. And we're so thankful that you did write it. Ed Park, thank you very much for joining us today. Congratulations on Same Bed, Different Dreams. It's one of the most totally original, incredibly immersive novels that I've ever read. Thank you so much, Doug. This was a real pleasure, a real treat. Ed Park is the author of the novel Same Bed, Different Dreams. Find out more at wpr.org beta. Well, that does it for this edition of Beta. Thanks to our guests, Billy D. Williams, M.D. Dunn, and Ed Park. What you're gleaning from these interviews is groundbreaking. Don't forget to subscribe to Beta on Apple Podcasts or wherever you catch your favorite pods. Be sure to offer a rating. That'll help us build our alpha army. And you can keep up with us during the week online at wpr.org slash beta. I gotta get on that internet. I'm late on everything. Beta is a production of Wisconsin Public Radio and Red Meat Productions. Fantastic. Our music and technical director is Steve Gotcher. He is only one of over 60 weird and strange creatures to emerge out of the fantasies of the men and women who work here. Our executive producer is Adam Friedrich. Charming, cavalier, uh, roguish kind of character, you know, who's out there. And thanks to you, our alphas. More Beta comes your way next week. Until then, I'm Doug Gordon. I didn't look for work. I just sort of locked myself away and uh, and just read books. <laughs>